welcome to Power Up Your Performance, where we talk about how you can learn to think, feel, perform, and live like a champion. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Michelle Seeger. She is the author of No Sweat, How the Simple Science of Motivation Can Bring You a Lifetime of Fitness. Dr. Seeger has devoted her 25-year career to creating sustainable behavior change for health and well-being, and she is a recognized pioneer in the field. Decades before it was widely studied, she began researching how to build lasting motivation and sustainable health-related behavior among individuals in both research and in real life. Michelle holds a doctorate in psychology, a master's degree in health behavior, health education, and a master's degree in kinesiology from the University of Michigan. She is also the director of the University of Michigan's Sport, Health, and Activity Research and Policy Center. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you here to share your knowledge and your research with my listeners. We've talked about this before, but just so that the listeners can get the background about how I found you and your research, I thought I would go into a little bit of that and then we can jump into some questions. Sure. So my interest in your work, I, well, first I met you a couple of weeks ago or about a month ago at the Idea World Fitness Convention where you were speaking on the topic of behavior change and exercise motivation. And so I was really excited to get to meet you in person because my interest in your work had started back this winter. I was coaching 12 half marathoners and basically it was during the winter. I had only one of those people follow through and do their spring half marathon I had another one who had an old injury flare up and had to drop out. And then another one who just kind of reevaluated her priorities and decided that she would continue along a fitness path, but that running wasn't going to be her thing. So of my 12, I had nine people who didn't get to their goal. And it really kind of shocked me because I, I, it, it was just something I'd never heard of. You know, you set a goal to run a half marathon. It's a long-term goal. You're gung-ho, you're going to do it. And so it was shocking to me. And so I started researching all this, you know, behavior change and behavior motivation, exercise motivation, trying to figure out, is there something else I should be doing with these people to help keep them engaged and keep them moving along toward their goal? And everything that I ran across referenced your research in your book, No Sweat. And so I started studying it. I read your book and I was like, I love this philosophy. So when I saw you at Idea World and I saw that you were going to be there, I was like, I have got to go listen to her speak because I was so excited about what you were doing. Well, I'm so glad that the work resonated with you. Yeah. So you've spent 25 years studying this topic. So this isn't something that we're going to solve in a quick 30 minute podcast by any means, but what got you interested in this subject? So I got interested, it was, I I didn't intend to go in this direction, but when I was doing my master's thesis, um, when I was getting my uh, master's in kinesiology at the University of Michigan, uh, back in 1993, we were looking to see if we could help cancer survivors feel better psychologically. And so that's what we aim to study 
we did a control trial where one group got exercise and one group didn't. And then we did a crossover so that the people who didn't exercise, they actually eventually did get it. And that meant we could use them as both a control group and add their data to the experimental condition. And we found that it did, that the, when people exercised, they psychologically felt better. Their, their depressive and anxiety symptoms reduced. But what happened is, and this was the, non, the unintended part, we called everyone back to our study to do focus groups after the study had ended about three months. It was about three months, take her, you know, a couple of weeks. And we started talking about exercise with these people. People sat around and smiled when they talked about exercising. But we were shortly to discover something really kind of shocking. Despite talking about the benefits of exercise, most people in our study had stopped exercising when our study had ended months before. So they had felt comfortable exercising for us, but when the study ended and it was really just about them, they didn't keep it up. And as a young 20-something, I was like, why not? Why, Why did you stop exercising? And they talked about how busy they were. And their busyness had nothing to do with being cancer survivors. It just had to do with being busy adults with families and working and the sandwich generation and this and that. And when I heard that, I literally had a a light bulb go off in my brain. And I said to myself, if people who have faced a life-threatening illness do not feel entitled to make their own self-care a priority in their daily life, then we have a real problem in society. And I decided I was going to solve it. And so everything I've been doing for the last 25 years has been in service of trying to understand the problem and then most importantly, how to solve it. Very interesting. And I, and I love that your whole research and the whole path started with the cancer survivors or the cancer patients. I think I told you when we met that I had breast cancer and I'm coming up on three years as a survivor now. And I was in amazing shape when I was diagnosed. And so I already understood the benefits of exercise. But you go, when you're going through chemo, you go through this, you, you just get horrible joint and bone pain. And so one of the things I did to alleviate that pain was I had a little yoga routine that I would do. And I would do it a couple of times. It was an eight-minute routine. I would do it a couple of times a day. And it made it so I could walk across my room pain-free on those really wow. bad days. Wow. And so... It's one of these things that I knew helped me and would make me feel better. But as somebody who's lying on a couch feeling like crap, it's not something you're inspired or motivated to do. And so I find this really interesting because anytime I talk to somebody who is going through chemo, it's one of the things that I tell them, this really helped me. And if they are not an exerciser, if they had not been an exerciser, it's practically impossible to convince them that they will feel better because of this. Right. And it's interesting. I mean, there's another, another piece of that is whether people feel people who were regular exercises or who weren't, but believe in these, there's a lot of outdated beliefs about what 
balance is exercise out there. And so, you know, you devise this eight minute yoga routine for you and eight minutes. Some people might say, well, eight minutes, what's the, how, how, okay, that's not good enough, but let me, let me tell you a, a brief story that really, I think ties into what you're talking about. Someone contacted me, um, after my book came out and she said, you know, my uncle is going through chemo and his doctor told him to exercise. It would help him. It was help with the nausea. It would help him feel better. And this gentleman said, she said, my uncle said, why bother? I can only walk a block. So here is this wonderful opportunity for someone to feel better from movement but because it was only a block, the gentleman didn't believe it was worth doing. And so I think while we're talking about the context of cancer treatment, my work was during cancer survivorship, but your experience and the gentleman's experience, I think there's also a wider need to help people understand. And this even, who knows, could get to the reason why your 12 clients, like why so few of them actually made it to the finish line of preparing, people have overly grandiose ideas at no fault of their own, by the way. It's just what we've learned to believe in society that exercise has to look and feel a very, not a certain way, a specific way. And it includes discomfort and sweating and, uh, you know, maybe pain. And if exercise doesn't look and feel like that, then it, it doesn't, it's not exercise. And unfortunately, I still believe the majority of the population believe that, but we know now from the science that there's a continuum of movement and everything counts. So it's interesting how, I mean, I think your, your comment ties into this bigger conversation. Friends, I am so excited about a new program I am launching on August 20th. It's the Foam Roller Frenzy, and it's 30 days of warm-ups, cool-downs, core and strength workouts, all incorporating the Foam Roller. Now, before you tune me out because you believe the Foam Roller is a cruel torture device, let me tell you that these are all quick workouts that you can incorporate into quick breaks in your day. Do them at work, while you're watching TV, or before or after another type of a workout. My goal with this program is to help you develop some new foam rolling skills. So by taking care of your feet, your calves, your quads, your upper back, all those parts of the body where we tend to experience pain becomes as much a part of your life as brushing your teeth. Experience more of the things you love when you move well and move pain-free. For more information... Go to crushingmygoals.com and click on store. You talk a lot about how there's a gap between what people say they value and their behavior and that the problem is kind of what's going on in that space in between. How do we close that gap or can you address that topic? Yes. So most people, when they decide to start a behavior change, to initiate a behavior change, like to become, you know, to become a regular exerciser, they're doing it for a certain reason. And it might be because it's swim, it's swimsuit season, or their doctor's warning them that things are going downhill, or their spouse is badgering them, whatever the reason is, or they just really decide, gosh, 
I want to take better care of myself. The, that is a moment, I call that a motivation bubble. It's where people initiate the change. The problem is that there is this divide, this edge, a precipice where once the bubble bursts, which usually happens within two to four weeks because your kid gets sick or you've got an urgent, unexpected deadline at work or, you know, your roof falls through with extra rain and you have to deal with all these contractors, whatever the reason is, all of a sudden those things become more important than your aspirational or should-based reason for starting. And then life takes over and kicks in and you stop. So, and, I, and you know, this, what I'm going to explain came out of my own research and actually research that, um, kind of went against what I had hypothesized. I used to think that exercising for health was a really, would be an optimal motivator. And when my research suggested that it wasn't an optimal motivator, I, I needed to understand why my research showed that and what it meant. And so what I'm going to explain to you is really what I was forced to learn from this unexpected and unanticipated finding. And it is that we have two parts of our brains. One is kind of based in logic and it's our, the part we plan out of. So yes, I'm going to become a regular exerciser. And then there's this part of the brain that's more based on the immediate moment and the experience and urgent and emotions. And so when urgent things happen, that's, and we get stressed out about them, you know, there's this difference between aspirational ideal and reality and what's real. And so what we need to do, and this is really what took me to one of my biggest findings, is we need to understand how people make their daily decisions. Let's forget about sustainable behavior change. That's the outcome we want. What, de- what delivers the outcome is, is when people make consistent decisions to move or to get enough sleep day in and day out. So what's the lever of decision making? And guess what? It's how we feel. It's how... Oh. The emotional part of our brain. So what we want to do when it comes to exercise is we want to make sure that physical movement plays a role in our daily lives, not aspirationally, but how does it help us feel better every day? Mm-hmm. And you, again, it ties back to what you said earlier. And, it's, and I want to also, the caveat to what I'm going to say is you know, Baskin and Robbins has 31 ice cream flavors or used to anyway for a reason because we're all different and we all want different things on different days. So what I'm suggesting isn't necessarily going to be true for everyone. It won't be true for everyone, but I believe it's going to be true for most people because of the way it's based on the way the human brain works. Okay. So what we want to do is help people understand that we want their exercise to play a role in their daily life, not just I need to prevent diabetes because it's in my family. It's not that that's a bad reason. The problem is if that's your reason for exercising, the other urgent stuff is most likely going to take over every day. But if you know through experience, and there is an experiential process that I, you know, that I talk about in No Sweat, that takes someone from the, okay, in theory, Michelle, I get this, but how do I actually convert exercise from a chore into a gift that fuels me every day, you actually have to experience it and start to notice, hmm, on the days I exercise, I feel better. And that makes me, that enables me to be a better parent, 
a better mom, a better dad. It enables me to be more creative at work. I actually enjoy work more versus on the days that I don't, I just don't have the verve that I have. So it's helping people really understand that. And it has to come, they have to do it for themselves. We can't tell someone this is true. They actually have to experience it themselves. Mm -hmm. So then what do you do to get that person who is not a regular exerciser to agree to even make that first step and experience it so they can discover all of these things? Well, we have to find out what people, what people really want in their life that they don't have. So, you know, in today's world where everyone's crazy, busy, and very tired, I mean, fatigue and low energy is kind of, they're kind of chronic conditions for people, you know, people daily feel exhausted. And, you know, so the way that you get people interested is you start to ask them, you know, would you like to have more energy? And did you know that it's actually easier than you think? It gets, this ties back to the idea that if people think they have to kill themselves at the gym for 60 minutes for it to be worth doing, like many believe, then eventually they go, oh, I just don't have the energy for that. But what if instead we taught people of the continuum and everything counts from this very teeny little piece of literally walking one way one minute and then turning around from that little bit to a marathon, if everything in between counts, and on some days, it's, you might not have the energy for a 15 minute walk, but you might have the energy for a three minute walk. If we can start to teach ourselves the value of consistency over quantity, then we'll help people be able, you know, to do it. Now, in your presentation in San Diego, you had this great, it was a series of slides where you had somebody looking at an island through binoculars. And I think that the part of your speech you were, ta- you were talking about was how the fitness industry and, or in the diet industry has basically sold us something that isn't sustainable, that isn't possible for the average person. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, in that presentation, I talk about the island of distant goals, which is, you know, what, what the way that the way for any health behavior change, not just for exercise, but basically the way it works is, um, you know, we've been given binoculars and told to look at these islands of the island of getting fit and the lagoon of disease prevention, you know, and et cetera. And when we have binoculars on, the islands look really close and we think we can get there. But once we start rowing toward the islands, we see that it's further than we thought and maybe harder than we thought. It's like the motivation bubble, which is just another analogy. Like once we're out of that and we are in reality, it's, it's not doable for most people. And so what we as professionals want to do is we want to help people kind of tailor and create what is going to work for them. And we have to give people permission to do what they can do because the reality is, is that that's what most people can do is just what they're able to do. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, and this might sound demotivating to some people, but I found it's that my clients are relieved when I tell them you don't have to do this. You know, it doesn't have to be so aspirational, but for whatever reason, we've been sold exercise as this, vehicle for perfection and it has to be perfect instead of 
like eating. We don't eat the same thing every day right. at the same time. Although my husband does lunch, <laughs> because some people are like that who do the same thing, and that's fine. But we we don't think of physical movement in the same way we think about food, which is when we don't have enough time for the full course. We grab what we can on the go, and we can do the same thing with physical activity. I love that analogy too, and, I, and I've used it a lot actually talking to different people recently. As I, you know, we're trying to how do you motivate people? How do you stay motivated? And I think that the analogy just makes it a really great way to understand that sometimes those goals are not as close as what we've been led to believe by, you know, the ads and the images we see online. And and it takes a lot of long-term motivation, maybe, to to be able to get to that goal. And so taking a look inside and trying to figure out what are those reasons why we, we exercise, that's important. And that makes me ask, wonder, I do remember in your book, you talk about how you know, a lot of us think if we have more than one reason why we're going to do this, that that's going to keep us more motivated. But your research showed that having only one reason why was a better motivator, right? So uh, there's other research uh, about goal dilution, which shows that there, but in general, it's a surprising thing to that the science is suggesting that when we have a emotional positive reason such as feeling better to motivate us and we pair it with another motivation that might be about losing 10 pounds or you know avoiding a dreaded disease in 20 years that having those two goals would be more motivating but you know some research suggests that the the logical health related goal is going to dilute the power of the positivity. Um, You know, there's some emerging research. Uh, There was another study that came out in, came at this question in a different way, and I haven't read it fully, so I can't really speak to it. But I think this is a question that's still under consideration. So I wouldn't say, you know, 100%, you should only have one goal. But I think what's important that I'm taking away from the from my own research as well as other people's research is that whether you realize it or not, physical movement, the people who stick with it, physical movement gives them something immediately. Okay. And in fact, the research shows that this actually motivates people unconsciously. You don't even know it's this immediate feel-good benefit or the sense of accomplishment, which I would consider an immediate feel-good benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, but that we want people to find those types of reasons. And once I talk, I ask people to try to, as you know from you know, sweat, exercise, exercise, so that they can take out the stuff that is demotivating. It's got to hurt to be worth doing. It's going to help me have the perfect body. All these meanings and goals for it actually get in people's way. So we, and, and again, people believe these things because We've been taught these things. So it's no one's fault that they believe this, but what we need to do as a society is help people throw out all that bad stuff so that they mm-hmm. can encounter the treasure, the daily treasure that physical activity can be. And I love that. You also talk about thinking of exercises being this gift that you give yourself rather than this chore that you have to do. So that plays right along with that. Yes. Just trying to take a look at 
what are the positive things? What are the good things you're getting out of exercise or your nutrition habits or whatever? Yes. And there is emerging research even in, in food that shows that what people eat influences how they feel. So while, you know, some people might say, I feel better when I eat a cookie than when I eat a salad. And some people do say that, and that may be true. There's other types of feelings. There's energy levels. And so there is an emerging body of research, like there is on exercise, on eating, that shows that certain foods actually do help you feel better than others. Yeah. And that's so amazing, too, because, you know, you're just thinking about, our bodies and how smart they are and how exercise actually does more than just help your heart. It helps your brain. And so there's so many benefits. And, you know, even I think about people who are sitting in their office having to work. Do you have any research or know of any research related to the benefits of getting up out of your chair during the workday? Um, Yeah, I mean, I haven't conducted this research myself, but there, you know, there's mounting research that suggests that, you know, getting up and moving your body is really helpful during the day. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there, there are a lot of different pieces to that. You know, do you have to have a treadmill desk? No. You know, what, what I've understood is that whether you're sitting or standing, you still want to move your body throughout the day. And there are strategies you can do, like, you know, you could drink little bits of water instead of big so that you have to get up during the day. Now, I I do have to say, I mean, you know, rather than have aspirational goals around, I have to move every 10 minutes every day, maybe you have two days a week that you set a timer, not every day, not Uh perfection, but you know, where you say, I'm going to set my alarm for every 30 minutes or every two hours on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And that's going to be the way I do it. And I'm just going to stand up. You don't have to walk a mile. You can literally just stand up and give, you know, give yourself a chance to get comfortable with something rather than jump in, in the hardcore. I'm going to do it every day because this is what the research says is good. No, dabble your, you know, dip your toes in and see what happens. Well, and I like what you said too about not expecting perfection, because I think when people get all caught up in that perfection, that's one of the other things that makes them quit. And if, you know, it's kind of like saying, oh, I need to go out and do 60 minutes of hardcore exercise. Well, maybe if you only got five minutes in, that's better than not doing anything because you're consistent. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, Consistency is the... I, it's not a word that has really infiltrated into our language yet, but I, I think that, you know, in the next, I don't know, two to 10 years, even more than sustainable behavior change, we're going to start talking about consistent choices because that is truly what, what leads to what we're looking for. Um, it's more specific to think about things as making a consistent choice, even than, creating a sustainable behavior change. That's kind of the aspirational goal, but let's get down and dirty with the day. And what does that look like? And what does that take? Mm -hmm. I love that. This is all such great research. Is there anything important that I didn't ask you that you wanted to make sure we talked about? You know, I think, you know, I think we touched on it, but the one thing I guess I would want to leave your you know, your tribe with is the idea that self-care is 
among the most strategic things you can do. You know, I think we're shifting from the idea that it's selfish. I think maybe in the 60s and 70s, people, maybe 80s, maybe even 90s people, and still today, people believe I feel selfish carving out time to take care of myself. But I think that is going to shift, that people are going to recognize, because the reality is, is that we are physiological, biological beings. We're not machines, but even machines need to be taken care of. But we are biological beings. If we don't cultivate that energetic part of ourselves, that very real part of ourselves that really makes this body um, what it is, we cannot be our best selves. And it's not cliche. We, We won't have the energy and enthusiasm to you know, to work in the way that is most meaningful to us, to be the parent we want to be and really value being. So I I think it's important for us to really start to talk amongst ourselves and to give ourselves and each other kudos when, you know, I, I shut down Twitter five minutes early last night just so I could get five minutes more sleep. It's a little bit but that's the beginning. That's the first step. And I think we need to start talking about it and start mm-hmm. to well, what happened when you did that? Did you feel good about yourself? Did you feel proud of yourself? Did you, did you feel any different the next day? So I think that's what yeah. we I think we need to have start to have more conversations and support each other and ask each other how we're doing, especially with the small stuff. I love that. I love that. So you have the book, No Sweat. And in No Sweat, you have, at the end of each chapter, some little exercises and things for people to think about. Where else can people connect with you? Um, You know, people can feel free to go to my website, which is just my name, michelleseeker.com. I've got some free resources on the website. Um, I've got a newsletter that I send out a few times a year with updated research. And there's a quiz that helps people identify you know, how sticky their uh, behavior changes and it gives them pointers based on what they said for where they can go from there. So I'm in the process of developing a train the trainer for fitness professionals and people who work with clients and patients. Um, And if they get on my newsletter, they can learn about that when it's ready. That's great. I'm excited to see that one developed too. Well, thank you so much for being here and we just really appreciate the time you've spent and your 25 years dedicated to this information and trying to help people learn how to be more consistent. So thank you. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. I'm coach Kim Peak of Power of Run, and you can find me at www.crushingmygoals.com or on all social media as at sign power of run. If you liked this episode, be sure to give the podcast some love over on iTunes and remember to subscribe as a new podcast, your reviews and stars and subscribes will help me grow the audience so that I can share my love of health and fitness and bring more experts to the show. Power up your week and I will catch you next Tuesday.